Welcome back to Sustainably Influenced, the podcast guiding you through the minefield of sustainability with your hosts Charlotte Williams and Bianca Foley. This season we'll be interviewing experts in sustainability and ethical living to shed a little light on the many terms used across industries, discussing the different aspects of living a conscious lifestyle and how we can do our bit to make a difference. Welcome back to another episode of Sustainably Influenced. Today's episode is a good one, even if I do say so myself, and Charlotte and I are actually joined by the lovely Kesha Hanam. You may remember that name as Kesha actually joined us back on season one for an episode where we spoke all about environmental racism. That was actually one of our most downloaded episodes from the season, so we were delighted to have her back on for season two. Today's episode, we're changing up the topic just slightly, and we're going to be talking about racial and climate justice. Kesha is a global speaker, writer and activist who works to heighten individuals and groups' understanding of their own biases, the actions they can take and how the climate crisis impacts black and brown communities the most. Known as a community builder and narrator, she has spoken for the New York Times, Fortune 500 companies like Marriott and Macy's and even at the United Nations. Let's get into today's episode. We are joined again by the lovely Kesha Hanam. Over the last few months, have you seen any change or progress made in this space? You know, I was reading a really powerful Financial Times article yesterday. I want to read an excerpt from it. Um, It's by the author Arundhati Roy, who is an Indian novelist. And she says, historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew. This one is no different. It is a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. We can choose to walk through it, dragging the carcasses of our prejudice and hatred, our avarice, our databanks and dead ideas, our dead rivers and smoky skies behind us. Or we can walk through lightly with little luggage, ready to imagine another world and ready to fight for it. And I was like, oh, so many parts of that just hit me on a lot of levels. And I just... I feel like we're still deciding, like socially we're in this place of like, ah, yes, like we know that we need to let go of all of this periphery that is actually not serving us and actually exploiting people. I don't think we're there yet. You know, I was talking to somebody about the concept of like, since the Black Lives Matter movement in the US has happened, do we actually feel like we're closest reparations? And, you know, I was saying that this feels like, the beginning of it and he was like uh I don't think we're even close to there because there's still so much racist policy in place but yeah this is like this is kind of how the beginning of those conversations would look so all that to say yes I've seen change um I've seen progress I think you know personally I mentioned before that there was this has been the most financially viable year for me as an activist, as an educator, as an advisor in the social justice space, which to me, given we live in capitalism, you can always see what people care about by where they're spending their money. Um, and so that's, you know, and I'm sure that you both have seen that as well. And I'd be very curious as to what it's like in the UK, but that feels positive um, as long as it doesn't stay trendy, you know, as long as it stays and isn't trendy. Um, And I also think another really big indication of how things have changed in the last six months is the upcoming presidential election on November 3rd, which is filling everyone with a little bit of dread and also some hope, I hope, is that for the first time, so in in the debates that they do before the elections, climate change had up until this year received total in, in every presidential debate that's been telecasted, 11 minutes. 11 minutes of time, 11 minutes of attention and focus. 
Whereas in this debate war, in the first one that happened between Trump and Biden, it had its whole own section. And what's crazy is um, the anchor Wallace, he wasn't even supposed to talk about climate change. He, he said he hadn't brought it up in any of the journal, um, the journalist um, hearings up until that point. And then when the actual debate was happening, he brought up climate change. And so all of these things make me feel like, okay, we've had this pandemic, we've had deep economic uncertainty, we've had civil unrest and all of it's weighing on everybody. But I can also see that people are valuing from that people have valued voices and clarity and innovation and new ways of doing things. So, you know, I think, again, we have a historical black movement to thank for the for the uplifting of other social justice causes. And I hope it continues. I do think that we have seen change. And Angela Davis keeps mentioning that, you know, she's been at this for longer than any of us. And she keeps mentioning that this is a point of revolution. But what's important now is that we leverage that and we don't just sort of let it be a moment. Um, but it's actually sort of like Definitely. I one hundred percent agree with you. That's firstly I just want to say right there from that first quote that you mentioned, I feel like we could have just ended the episode there because that was so brilliant. <laughs> ah that was it. Thanks guys. <laughs> but yeah, it's just it's it's true. We are at a pivotal point now and it'll be it'll be interesting to see where we go from here in every society. And I mean, the UK is in disarray at the moment, much like the US. So it's just, I think I want to see what world we're going to step into over the next sort of five, six months, however long this continues on for. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's enough time for us to actually continue to see change. You know, if there, there's a, there's a weird part of me as much as I'm going nuts and like, you know, <laughs> can't wait for this to be finished. Um, and, and I'm grateful that I've been able to survive it in the healthy way that I have been. Um, the, the idea that we would go, not, I don't even want to say back, cause I don't think that's real anymore, but the idea that we would emerge into any kind of world that has the semblance of the world that we were a part of is more devastating to me. It would be more devastating if we went through all of this and change didn't happen. And if we are to continue to endure this, know that it's awful to the point of intolerable, but we come out on the other side and there's a reason for it. Like, you know, I do actually see that world that's possible. That's why this election is so important. It's like, this is such a high stakes election because really it's the last opportunity we have to make any kind of climate justice uh, part of policy because that's not going to happen with another four years of this administration in this country, which means that it's not part of the Paris Agreement, which is a knock-on effect to Brazil and India and the other close to dictatorial men who are in power, you know? So it's it's like it's you're watching history unfold in the next kind of like three weeks, which is just bizarre and, and um, incomprehensible, I think, often. We're in a such a intense bubble right now where everything every action more than ever before has such drastic consequences and it's actually quite scary and also a little bit unbelievable um and I still feel like we're in like a tv show do you not ever feel like you're walking around like in an episode of Westworld or something like that I feel like it's all completely surreal I sometimes I'm like how is this happening how 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 and we've normalized it yeah. now. 
I think we've all gone through that grieving point of it and we've learned to accept it. And now we're trying to find, it's not even a new normal anymore, just how do we continue from here? And I feel like a lot of people have gone through a state of like rebirth, renewal, but out of that renewal, as you said at the start, you've got that choice of who you want to be. And do you want to be somebody who stands for change or do you want to go back to the wacky way that things used to be? So, And there's only one together. Yeah. There's only one yeah. or the other. There's no middle ground here. Yeah. You can't sit on the fence. <laughs> so you posted recently about Dr. Ibram Kendi's How to Be anti How to Be an Anti-Racist. What were your own personal takeaways from that book? Mm. There's it's so good. If no one if you haven't read it, I really, really recommend it. It's very compelling because it's sort of part how-to, part memoir. Um there's there's a lot of important parts in the book. I think one of the main ones I'll speak about now is the central premise is that there's two ways of being in the world. You're either racist or you're anti-racist. And it's difficult to conceive for those unwilling to relinquish the, the definition of not racist. And that's because Kendi, the author, suggests that not racist isn't, it's just not really a thing. It's, it's, it's a construct. It's a paradigm. Um, not racist is a term that, for me, the way he described it explains neutrality, but you can't actually be neutral in a racism struggle. It's like if you're watching an injustice unfold in front of you, you either choose to break up that injustice or you turn away and you walk away from it. And I think that analogy is really important when we think about racism and our part in racism. You either endorse the idea of racism or you're against racial, racial hierarchy. And that is just a truth. And the quicker we sit with that and process where we are, just own one, you know, like if you're going to be one or the other, just own it. Um, and then the second thing that I think is really, really powerful about that book is he breaks down for me, this was really important as a mixed person who has been a perpetual immigrant across a lot of colonial places, so Hong Kong and Australia and the UK. Um, the idea of the three definitions of being a segregationist an assimilationist and a anti-racist so uh, um, a segregationist, obviously, there is a racial hierarchy. Some races are better than others, but they need to be separated because of that. Assimilationist, that there is one dominant race that is superior in some way, and people need to assimilate to that thinking pattern, which is what I experienced a lot as a, as a brown person in Australia. And these were the words that I was like, oh, that's what it was. Like, that's why I never felt comfortable in Australia. I was always just like... I like it. It's a beautiful place, but like, I don't know. I don't want to be there because it's such an assimilist cu culture. It's like, yeah, you can be here if you're a good immigrant, you, you know, and Afua Hirsch um, in British, which is another extraordinary book that I recommend, particularly everyone who calls themselves or identifies with being British um, should read. Basically, it's like you, you are allowed to stay here if you're a good immigrant, you know? Um, and so those breaking down versus an anti-racist, whereas an anti-racist will look at society and look at culture and say, there is no cultural hierarchy. All of them are equal and none need developing. And for me to tie that back into the work that, you know, we care about in terms of environmentalism and sustainability and climate justice, I think that's really crucial in us understanding how we build a world that is gentler for our planet, because right now we value European capitalism, which exploits it. Literal capitalism is like, how can I 
accrue the most amount of wealth, resources, whatever it is, from this thing, whether it's a person, whether it's a dam, whether it's a factory. And so for us to be able to change that, the idea is that we have to first recognize that that is a racist idea. We are, we are espousing the idea that European capitalism is the most civilized way for us to be, right? I've heard that. My, my own white father will talk about that all the time. It's like, but look, India has railroads now. They didn't have railroads before as almost this justification. Um, and so for me, in, in terms of, of moving that into how do we build a new world? Okay, well, we need to first recognize we have racist ideas about what the best practice is or the best way of living and being. And then it also helps us to uphold indigenous culture, which is, I think, the thing that's going to save us. You know, it's like for us to be able to stay on this planet, we need to go back to the way that people were living for literally centuries until we started destroying it. And we can only do that when we value indigenous knowledge in the same way that we value the science of modern white colonialism. So true. Also, you just answered the, the next two questions. <laughs> <laughs> just getting them all in. <laughs> One was, um, how do we practically be climate anti-racist? Mm. I mean, yeah, I, I think those two things are tied together. Um, I think that <sighs> climate anti-racism, I think, starts with reparations of all kinds. Um, and in the US, I find it bizarre that we're talking about reparations for black people, which is necessary. I'm not, we definitely should do that, but we should also be talking about reparations for indigenous land. And like, there are, there's already been indigenous land rights and um, there's, there's sort of the, the, the head nod of policy towards that. Um, but actually valuing indigenous knowledge and knitting it into the way that we operate as a society, I don't think we've done. So for me to think about, you know, and this is not, um, I want to be clear, this is not an actual term. This is something that I have put together after reading Ibram Kendi's book about being an anti-racist and then being like, ah, okay, the idea is centrally that to be an anti-racist, you're either choosing to be racist or anti-racist. There is no in-between. I think we can apply that same theory to climate justice in the sense of you're either aware of the climate crisis and you're actively doing everything, well, not everything, but whatever is reasonable and within your power, because I also want to make sure that we don't keep shaming the individuals when corporations mm -hmm. are the largest causes of environmental damage. Um, I'm doing what I can to contribute to the climate solution, or I don't care, and I actively am choosing to not care. And I think applying that, um, so like recognizing that, being able to articulate which camp we're in is the first part of being a climate anti-racist and knowing that you would say that. Um, but then it also is recognizing that racist policy and ideology is what has kept indigenous people in every land. So there are indigenous people in India, there are indigenous people in China, there are indigenous mm -hmm. people in Australia. It has kept their knowledge out of the mainstream and it has made people primitive, right? Like if we think about the idea that indigenous people were originally seen to be primitive because they didn't care about colonial, they didn't care about making their natural resources commercial. So it was like, well, you're obviously ignorant and unintelligent for not capitalizing on your resources. Um, they didn't, they didn't use the land ownership wasn't part of their value system. They didn't base their, their economy on currency. It was based on relationships. 
So all of these things that now are, make sense to us and we're like, oh, maybe that would make people feel more connected and would make people feel less lonely and would counter the, the consequences of poor mental health. All of these social consequences of capitalism are actually found in indigenous knowledge. But for so long, we've said that that's uncivilized and that is a racist idea. So that I think is the important um, tie-in between Ibram's book and how we can actively be anti-racist in our own lives. I was talking to my brother, my younger brother about this on the weekend. But yeah, we were talking about how indigenous people are totally forgotten about because we're talking about Australia. Um, and brown people and just racism in general in Australia and but my, my brother was like but Australians are brown that they're, they're like dark skin and then someone said something and then we were like yeah aborigines who existed before the English came to Australia and it's the same that happens in America like we just forget that they exist and because we've been you know processed into forgetting that they exist absolutely that's why but it's just really interesting. But then you look at things like the wellness industry, which is focused around practices from traditional Af- African um, kind of like tribal traditions and from um, just like, yeah, from any kind of indigenous country. They've taken yoga, literally yoga. <laughs> and then Gwyneth Paltrow then puts, <laughs> no offense to you, Gwyneth, but then puts it on a TV show or like, puts on her website and it's like super expensive super chic but it's been things that our parents our grandparents our ancestors been doing forever but it seems primitive but now it's seen as you know a wellness trend but it's from the forgotten people and it's just really interesting and I'm hoping that you know with social media with the new gen z um kind of online environment where they question so much and they do so much research that we actually get this um kind of comeuppance of knowledge that now will become normality like oh like things like we can't say like oh she's my spirit animal that kind of stuff without being pulled up on now which is just such a small point that people have said for years and now you say it and you know there's consequences to it and it's quite it's just so interesting you can't wear hairdressers for Halloween because people know it's wrong um but this didn't happen 20 years ago no 100% it's de- and it definitely is different it's like who said something the other day I just am consistently like hmm, that phrase that you've always said is a bit like me even myself that phrase I've always said is that racist like we just have normalized so much, you know? And I think it's just important to just recognize we're all racist. And that's another really important part of Kendi's book because he goes from being anti-white racist, sorry, anti-black racist to being anti-white racist to being anti-racist. And we all have racism in us, you know? Like we all, it's like it, in people of color, it manifests as self-hate, but that self-hate and like the judgment we have towards other people of color are our own racist ideas coming to light, you know? And I do think that, yeah, the the intolerant generation that's coming up is like, no, sorry, you just can't say that. It, I, I yeah. will start to shift that. And the pendulum will go the other way. But I think it's a necessary shift. Definitely. I'm excited to see what's to come. I'm excited that so many younger people are asking questions that we never 
us when we were younger. And I just think it's important to note that there is going to be a wave of change when these young adults become adults and they are starting to work and they go into working in marketing, in finance, in whatever it, you know, what it might be. And they have their own way of being because of their, the culture that they've kind of learned online, not just like together. It's all come from the internet. Um, we'll see change. So I'm, I'm excited for our future. But at the same time, there are also the current adults and older people who need to make some drastic minds, mindset shift. Big shift. And it's difficult. No, I totally agree. And it's like, honestly, I think we just need better tools to be able to address it. I'm running a lot of workshops for corporates and the conversation that I hear a lot is like, how do I have this conversation with my family? Because it ends up being a disaster. You know, it ends up being chaos. It ends up being very vicious almost because people get so defensive. And I think, honestly, we have to call it like, White fragility is at a very high level right now because a culture that has always been dominant, you know, there's a reason why people don't like to talk about being white or called white or race in general is because it, it hasn't needed to, it hasn't affected, uh, and I can say that as myself, as somebody who grew up in a white majority, it wasn't something that you needed to contend with. The moment that starts getting questioned and, you know, you, it can feel like an attack. It's not, and it's important we name that, it's not an attack, it's calling out what is real. But because of that, there is a defensiveness that I think we also need to recognize requires kindness because otherwise it will be a bloody exchange versus a peaceful one. Um, but I, I also am excited to see what it looks like. And I, I do think we're building a new world. It's just we're in the thick of it. So we can't really, you know, yeah. climbing the mountain right now. We can't see the summit because we're like, clean onto the to the cliff side you know <laughs> try not to fall so um our final question that we've been asking everyone on the podcast um <laughs> is if you could ask everyone to make one small sustainable change what would that be what i'm really pushing for right now is in addition to allyship and advocacy which i think are two terms that we know relatively well so i'm not going to hash over them is accountability and I think without that third one, um, we can still be, um, we can tend towards um, virtue signaling versus actually making change and being part of the, of the people that usher in that change. And I know a lot of the, the audiences I speak to are people who are in some sort of position of power. Everyone has a position of power. I think that's also important is like there everyone has power and the only time that we don't have power is when we believe that we don't have power that is not to say that there are not systemic injustices and racist policy that keep people in positions that are less empowered than others but i also think it's really important we keep that narrative alive because otherwise we will actually rob ourselves of that power but accountability is because the, the, the case of the matter right now is that the people who are at the table and who are making decisions are affecting the lives of the people who are not. And so that exclusion, which is not often willful, I think a lot of the time it is willful, but oftentimes it's because of the implicit bias that every single one of us has. Another great book, Bias, um, by Dr. Jennifer Eberhardt, um, really important in, in unpacking the statistics and the neurology behind bias. Um, but that, that bias is going to always ensure that 
there are people who should be at the table who are not, and there are people at the table who shouldn't be. And so where we are at now is that we just can't keep letting things slide, whether that's in our family, where, where people are saying inappropriate things, whether that's with our local parliamentary members or, or senators or whatever your governing system is, you have the power to pay attention and to affect with your vote and with your voice what those people care about. That's what democracy is. If we are fortunate enough to live in a democracy, that's literally what that thing is. And so how do we ensure that we are upholding our values by holding people who are in power accountable? Um, and I think that also goes for, for businesses and corporations. Like I am looking at Exxon, the more that we understand that they knew about climate change 20 years ago, and literally were like the tobacco industry and decided not to share that information and profited instead off the science that they were funding. That's entirely unacceptable. Like there has to be repercussions for that. And unless we're talking about it, um, it won't come to pass. And so I've been really encouraged by, by corporations that are um, taking it very seriously, both internally doing a lot of education and then also setting up more partnerships with, um, you know, colleges of color and there are a number of different initiatives going on but I think that is really like where I'm asking everyone that is in an audience that I speak to is what is what is the accountability that we can hold ourselves to and then particularly on a governing level because I just think that govern governance and democracy is just at a, such a crucial point right now who are you going to hold accountable in some level of office so that we can actually make policy change because Otherwise, these systems won't. Yeah. Yeah. So true. It, that's, oh. that's a really nice point to end on.